Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14. Just hold your spot there, Matthew 14. It's going to be a little while before we, uh, before we get there, and uh, this morning it's going to be uh, more passages of Scripture than is the norm. So I usually like to focus on one or two passages for the most part. We're going to cover quite a few this morning, and so let me go ahead and get you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew. I said 14. Actually, it's chapter 16. My apologies. Matthew 16. Hold your spot there. We're going to get there soon enough. So we're in a series still called What's in a Name? We've been in this series now for a couple of months or so. Uh, my, my, uh, my plan is that today and then next Sunday we will round out that series, and, uh, and then we're going to be headed right on into the holidays really soon after that. So, but, the, but this series has been helpful, I think, for a number of reasons. Probably one of the biggest is that it's in a series like this that we're reminded of who God is clearly, because when we know the names of God, it helps us to, to be reminded of His character and of His qualities, right? Because that's what names do. And whenever we read of different names of God in the pages of Scripture, whether it's in the Old Testament, whether it's in the New Testament, it, it's a kind of appealing back the curtain of another layer of who he is. And so as we learn different names of how God's revealed himself, helps us to know him more clearly, helps us to draw closer to him, helps us to trust him more easily. And so through this series, we looked at quite a few of the different names of God. And, and let me just remind you, for some of you, this, this may be a brand new topic. You've never even heard that God had more than one name, right? For you, he's just always been God. Well, well in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew or in the New Testament, the Greek, we see different names, but it doesn't mean he's different gods, right? You probably have three names, at least. When you got married, if you're, if you're a female who's married, you took on another name. So some of you have four names, right? Uh, and yet you're still the same person. You're one person. It's much the same with God. He's one God. And yet when we learn all these new names of his, they're revealed in Scripture. It doesn't mean he's a different God. It's just another aspect of who he is. It's another aspect that helps us to understand his nature, and a different quality about him. And so we've been walking through this series, What's in a Name, learning more about who God is, understanding hopefully a little bit better, a little bit better and a little more clearly. And this morning, we're going to add yet another to the list. It's out of the New Testament, and it's going to be the name Jesus. Jesus. You didn't see that one coming, I have a feeling, right? You're like, wait a minute. Well, I didn't think about that one as being a name for God, but as we're going to see here throughout the course of this, this, uh, this message this morning, it is certainly another name for God. So uh, one of the things that we need to be reminded of is the concept of what's called the Trinity. You know, when you begin to read the Bible, you'll never find the word Trinity in the pages of Scripture, but you'll find the concept of the Trinity all through the Bible. Now, there are many different religions that, that uh, completely deny the doctrine of the Trinity, but for us, I think this is an important place to be reminded of what the doctrine of the Trinity is, right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it is a good reminder that we need to, need, need to keep in mind, especially this morning. What the Trinity is, is the simple truth that's revealed in Scripture that God has shown himself in three different distinct persons, he is one God. He's one true God, right? He's the only true God in existence, and yet he's revealed himself most clearly as Father and as Son and as Holy Spirit, right? And so all through Scripture, we see evidence of that. And when the Bible speaks of God as Father or as Son, Jesus, or as the Holy Spirit, all three persons 
are, are dealt with in Scripture as part of the Godhead. They're all dealt with as deity. Nowhere in the Bible is the Father dealt with as less than God. Nowhere in the Bible is Jesus dealt with as less than God. Nowhere in Scripture is the Holy Spirit dealt with as less than God. And so when we understand or begin to grasp a little bit this concept of the Trinity, it's the belief that there is one God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we look at the name that God has revealed himself as Jesus, we're looking at the second person of the Trinity. We're looking at God the Son. Some of you, you have, you've studied this and you've known this for years and years. Others of you, this is maybe your very first time in a long time or really ever that you've really kind of gone on a quest to understand who, who is God, who is Jesus, and, and what relation does I have in my life. Some of you are really beginning to think, think through that in a way like never before. What Scripture portrays for us as Jesus is that He is God, and He is the clearest representation of who God is in all of Scripture. And so today, we're going to look a little bit and uh, pull out quite a few different passages and looking at the name where God's revealed Himself, the name of Jesus specifically. The story starts, in a sense, at least the earthly entrance of Jesus into this world. He's without beginning and without end. But the story of his earthly existence starts with a guy named Joseph. Joseph, you can imagine, was one at this point in the Bible story, I guess what we could call the Christmas story in a way. Joseph was one who, at this stage, had probably more high hopes and bright dreams than ever before in his life. He was a carpenter, the Bible tells us, probably had calluses all over his hands, probably very worn and very rugged, probably had a few splinters in his fingers on any given moment, on any given day. And Joseph was one at this stage of his life where, I mean, he had everything out in front of him. He had, whether he had recently met her or whether the families had arranged it, regardless, he was about to commit his life in marriage to a girl named Mary. And for Joseph, all of this was out ahead of him. And you can imagine with every day that he woke up, right, he was counting down the days. This is when the wedding's going to take place. He was thinking through what that was going to be like and what their lives would be like spent together as husband and wife. And they had come to the place where it had really, really gained speed, really ramped up because they were what's called being betrothed. It was like a ramped up version of engagement today where if you were to back out or to break a betrothal in the first century in Israel, I mean, you would have to virtually go through a divorce proceeding. And so he was betrothed. He was engaged to be married, ultimately to marry. They had their whole life out in front of them, right? All these hopes and all these dreams. And, and every day he probably thought of something else that was going to be coming ultimately where, uh, you know, that would be a part of their lives together. And then everything changed. It was then that he heard the news, right? The bombshell that changed everything for him. It was the news that Mary, this girl that he trusted, this girl that he was about to commit his life to, and in many ways already had, that he learned the news that she was expecting. And he knew 100% that he was not the father. Well, you can only imagine, I mean, this is just an ordinary man, where his mind went. And he was probably filled with questions at that point. Well, who is he? Who's the other guy? 
how long has this been going on? Where does he work? Where does he live? Do I know his family? And he's probably, as an ordinary guy, he's righteous and he loves God, right? The Bible paints this, this uh, clear picture of his righteousness, but he, he maybe had wondered, where's my hammer, right? You know, where's the baseball bat, you know? And, uh, and how long will it take me to get to where this guy lives? I mean, all these, these thoughts are probably swirling through his mind when he learns this news that this, this girl that he has ultimately committed his life to is now somehow expecting. And, and I don't know when it came to him. I don't know if it was after breakfast one morning or talking with some of his buddies or if he just woke up one day and, and it was just crystal clear. I don't know. But he came up with a plan. And the plan was, you know what? I'm, an, I'm a man who honors the Lord and who serves the Lord. Mary's a, a good girl. I don't want to put her through disgrace. I'm just going to, I'm going to step out quietly. I'm going to back out of the circle and everything's going to be off no marriage, betrothal is over, I'm going to do whatever I need to do legally and, and, and uh, logistically to just step back out of the circle, I'm going to let her go her own way, I'm not going to drag her name through the mud, I'm not going to make a disgrace of her, I'm not going to put this in the headlines, I'm just going to let her go her way and I'm going to go my way and I'm just going to trust God with the, with the details. And that was the plan. And no doubt when he went to sleep this particular night, that was what he had planned to do. It was during that night when he drifted off to sleep that soon he would have a dream that in much the same way as the previous news rocked his world, this would do the same. And it was in this dream that God would bring him a message. And that message we see, thankfully, captured in complete accuracy in the book of Matthew chapter 1. Look at what it says here in verse 20. It says, when he, Joseph, had considered this, right, ending the marriage or, or the, the betrothal process, stepping away, sending her away quietly, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, if he had questions before, Man, oh man, he probably had a ton of questions now. Like, like, what on earth does all this mean, right? Joseph would more than likely have understood the concept of the Trinity, that he served one God who has revealed himself as Father. There would have been some understanding of the, of the, the Holy Spirit being God, and certainly there would have been an understanding that there would be a Messiah who would come, that God would send his Son one day. And now Joseph is suddenly much closer to the story than he had ever imagined because the angel tells him in this dream, for the child who has been conceived in her is not from some other man. She hasn't been unfaithful. She's exactly who you always knew she was, but rather this child is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And in the midst of Joseph wondering, I'm sure, how does this happen and, and, and what on earth is going to come next? Somewhere along the way, he knew, you know what? It is God's plan for me to continue with this. And continue is exactly what he did. Verse 21 would add even more shape to the story. When God would show Joseph in a dream, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You know, it's interesting here when you think about what's in a name that for Joseph and Mary... 
They didn't have to go through the agony of choosing a name, right? Some of you maybe you agonized over choosing a name, right, for your child. Like, what do we name her? What do we name him? We're going to name them after your father, after your mother. Do we use your maiden name? You know, there was this one person I knew, you know, he, he was a neat person or she was a neat person. Let's just name them after them. And all that agony, right? Poor Hannah, you know, she didn't have a name for two days in the hospital, until we had to leave and we had to come up with a name. And so we settled on Hannah and we signed the paperwork and off we went home and I've never regretted that ever since, right? How awesome, right, in this story that Joseph and Mary didn't have to choose a name, right? They were just told, this is gonna be his name. Here it is. Here's the name. His name's gonna be Jesus. And here's why, because he is gonna save his people from their sins. In the Greek language, it's a, it, it would be pronounced Jesus. In the Hebrew language, it would be pronounced Yeshua. And in the Hebrew language, it literally means, the, 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 the direct translation means Yahweh, right? Remember Yahweh, the, the God who is personal, the God who is, who is uh, independent of his creation. Yahweh, the God without beginning, without end, who, uh, who is preexistent. Yahweh is salvation. That's what the name Jesus means in the Hebrew language. Yeshua, Yahweh is salvation. And from the very beginning, the angel comes to Joseph in this dream, and he says, this is going to be this child's name, Jesus. And here's why. Because he's going to save his people from their sins. Joseph knew that all through the Old Testament, this had been prophesied. He understood as a God-fearing Jew here, right, who honored the Lord, who lived for God's glory. He understood the Old Testament prophecy that had been put out about who Jesus would be. I mean, he had heard it, he had read it, he had been trained up in it. One example, for, for, uh, for instance, would be in Isaiah chapter 9. Look at what the prophet Isaiah would write 750 years before Jesus would be born. He says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Joseph knew this is the child that has been prophesied for centuries. As the story would continue, this baby Jesus would be born in the exact moment that God the Father had ordained. The Apostle Paul looks back when he writes to the Galatians and he, he helps us to understand this. Look at what it says here in the book of Galatians chapter 4. Look at what he says. When the fullness of the time came in just that perfect moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You know what that passage means? It means that every single person who's ever lived in history outside of Jesus himself, every single person who's ever lived is separated from God. And the reason for that is because God has a perfect standard. The Old Testament calls it the law. The New Testament calls it that. It's this perfect standard that has been put in place by God himself, a God without beginning, without end. And he puts this perfect standard in place. And he says, this is my law, right? These are the rules of perfect holiness. And what happens is, is that we, when we stand up against that law, realize that we can't possibly keep it, that we're constantly going to fall short. And every single one of us in this room right here and every other person who's ever lived outside of Jesus himself in history has stood up against that law and it has been broken by it. 
unable to live up to that law, and as a result of being broken by it, stand before God, ultimately under the penalty of sin. Guilty with no way to to, uh, explain it away, no way to argue it away with no excuse. We stand under that law. And what this passage says, if we can bring it up one more time, what Paul is saying here in Galatians is that Jesus came in the fullness of time at just the right moment. And he ultimately came so that he might redeem, rescue, save, bring out of bondage those who had broken that law and were needing a savior. So Jesus makes his entrance into this world as God's prophesied son, as the savior of the world, as the Messiah. And when he comes, he comes in the perfect moment. His mom, Mary, his earthly father, Joseph, begin to raise him early in the story. However, the enemy is at work. It's through the ruler Herod that Herod begins to threaten Jesus's life. He'd be taken to Egypt. Look at what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2. It says, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up, take the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. You know what a lot of people don't realize is, and this is neither here nor there, it's just an interesting fact that Jesus lived in Africa, right, at one point in his life. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, he, he was in Egypt. Egypt is, well, you know. <laughs> and so here, under direction of God, the Father, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus travel to Egypt for the protection of not only their family, but Jesus himself. Soon after, they're going to settle back in to Israel. God, yet again, would get the message to them. Look a little bit further, Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. It says, when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Joseph in response would obey the father. He would take his family back to Israel. Ultimately, they would settle in a little town called Nazareth and Jesus would be known as a Nazarene. About 12 years would pass. There's no biblical evidence of anything that happened in Jesus's life through that time period. He comes back onto the scene again biblically in Luke chapter 2, and he's 12 years old. He's been raised up. He's grown up in the wisdom and stature of the Lord through that time. And now 12 years old, he reemerges again on the pages of Scripture, at least, in the city of Jerusalem. Look at what Luke says in chapter 2 of his gospel. It says his parents, Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, Jesus, became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover, along with a lot of other Jews as well. This feast of the Passover celebration is over. They gather together along with another, uh, with many others in a traveling caravan, and they travel back towards Jerusalem. But it says the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents were unaware of it, but they supposed him to be in the caravan, and they went a day's journey. They began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. 
When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. This is Jesus, 12 years old, fully man, fully God, amazing the religious leaders of his day. And as was the Jewish custom, it, it, it wasn't a lot of necessarily lecture-style teaching, it would have also been Q&A. That was the rabbinical style in those days. And Jesus, by his questions, was demonstrating an enormous acuity for the truth. And it was becoming recognized, this is not just a normal average 12-year-old boy here. And the reason for that is because, no, this is God. (laughs) This is God on the scene. 18 years would pass No more biblical evidence of anything that would happen in Jesus's life. Now, there would be extra biblical evidence of which we cannot determine to be true in any way. But according to Scripture, there would be silence in regards from Jesus's age, from the age of 12 to the age of ultimately about 30. And it's then that his public ministry would begin, and he would begin to travel, and he would begin to preach, and he would begin to teach, and he would perform miracles, and the crowds would begin to grow. And in the midst of it, if the question was ever asked, is he here just to draw a following? Is he here just to amaze the crowds? I mean, these miracles are something special. Is he here just to try to build a name for himself? Why is he here? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, exactly why he was here. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It lines up beautifully with the very plan of God the Father, doesn't it? That from the beginning, God was about redeeming and restoring those who were part of his creation into a relationship with himself. As this whole world stood as guilty sinners in the sight of the God who had created them, here comes Jesus, the Son of God, God himself. Uh, His very name, Yeshua, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, is salvation. He comes and he ultimately, by his own admission, says, I've come for one reason, not to dazzle the crowds, not to do a bunch of miracles, not just to preach sermons that are unforgivable. I came to seek and to save and to bring back into the Father's house, right? Those who were outside of his house, outside of his family, and outside of relationship with him. I've come to seek, and I've come to find, and I've come to save all those who are lost. And man, I'll tell you, there are people all over this room today that he found you, and he searched for you, and he sought you, And he ran you down and you might've been in a ditch or you might've been on the mountaintop of success, but there was a place where everything became crystal clear and you realized at the end of my day, there is no ditch too deep and there is no success that I can have that is so great that ultimately brings me to a place to where I cannot get to him or I don't need him. And you bowed before him one day and you gave your life to Jesus. It wasn't because you were so smart or because I was so intuitive, right? It was because God found you and he saved you that day. (laughs) That's exactly why he came. He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. One of those guys he'd find is Zacchaeus. The verse right before this, Luke 19, verse 9, he finds Zacchaeus in a way Zacchaeus never could have imagined. And it says that Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. It was Jesus fulfilling his own name. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. He walks into Zacchaeus' house and he says, today, salvation is here. 
We miss how radical that is. Walk into your buddy's house next weekend when he invites you over for a barbecue. Walk over to somebody's house when they invite you over for a Christmas party. And when you walk in, swing that door open wide. Walk in and say, woohoo, salvation is here, baby. Right? See how that goes. <laughs> and this is exactly what Jesus did. And he walks into that house of a person that the whole community would have called a sinner. And he says, today salvation is here. And Zacchaeus' life was never the same. Jesus would begin to make more claims. He wouldn't live a life of obscurity as he did largely that first year of public ministry, but rather the crowds would get bigger and the claims would be clearer. One of those claims would be the claim to be God himself. It'd be that claim, it'd be that claim that would get him crucified. It's two sides of the same coin. He was crucified for our sins. It was part of the plan all along. The other side of the coin, he was crucified because he claimed to be God. And the religious leaders wouldn't settle for it, and they would ultimately crucify him. Look at what Jesus says here in John chapter 10, verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Remember, God's whole desire all along from Moses at the burning bush when God says, my name is Yahweh, the most personal name I have. His desire all along has been to be known. No Buddhist would ever say, I have such an intimate relationship with Buddha. No Hindu would ever say, you know what? I serve thousands of gods in the plethora of gods that I believe exist. And I have such a close relationship with most all of them. No Hindu would ever say that. No Jehovah's Witness, try it when you share your testimony the next time they're at your door. No Jehovah's Witness would be able to testify and say, you know what, the Jesus that I've crafted who is less than God, I have such a close relationship with him. They don't have that. They're trying to work for their understanding of salvation. No false religion on this earth claims to have a, an intimate relationship between the person and whoever they've identified as their deity. But Christianity, Jesus himself says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It's relationship. And I give eternal life to them and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who's given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And it was that statement and others just like it that got him crucified. It was Jesus planting his feet and not saying in the house of a known sinner, salvation has come. It was Jesus planting his feet and saying to the religious leaders in all the world, I am God. And when you see me, you see him. They would arrest him under the cover of night. They would try him. Six different trials that were illegal in nature according to Roman or Jewish law. He would be beaten. He would be crucified. And yet it would be after he was laid in, an empty, in, in, in a tomb that had belonged to no one else, three days later, 
that he would rise again from the dead, proving that everything he had said was true. Luke chapter 24, verse 6. It would be immediately following his resurrection that his tomb would be visited. An angel would be there to say he's not here, but he's risen Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Over the next few years, that message that Jesus had proclaimed and had demonstrated and had lived out in perfection would be spread all over that region of the world. God would raise up leaders Some of them would have been former disciples, Peter, uh, James, John. Others would be other uh, new individuals that God would reach and save and put on mission. People like Paul, Barnabas. And as that message would continue forward, it would also continue outward. And the message was always the same. Luke captures it in the book he wrote called Acts chapter 2. Look at what it says here in the book of Acts, or chapter 4, I'm sorry, verse 12. He says, and there is salvation in no one else, Luke says. There is salvation in no one else, not to the Romans under Caesar. Caesar is not going to be your salvation, though you worship him as though he is and though he claims to be divine. Salvation is found in no one else. It's not found in another person. It's not found in a government system. It's not found in any good work that you can perform. He says, salvation is found in no one else. Talk about what's in a name. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Not one single person in all of history can stand before God in heaven one day. And if God were to say, why should I let you in? Not one single person can roll one name out there and say, oh, but I know Billy Graham, right? Or I knew such and such. Not one single name. It is only the name of Jesus, Scripture tells us, that a person can be saved by, only in association with him. It would go so far as the Apostle Paul, who was later saved by Jesus, would say in the book of Philippians, look at how far he goes with this, speaking of what's in a name. He would say in the book of Philippians chapter 2, that it's for this reason also that God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it was the only way that a person can know God. It is still the only way that a person can know God. And it will forever be the only way that a person knows God. Not when we get good enough. Not when we think we're holy enough. Not when we get plugged into a church. Not when we get baptized. But only when we come to a place where we fall on our face, figuratively speaking, and say, oh God, forgive me, a sinner of all my sin. Jesus, would you come and take over and save my soul? That's the only thing that makes us right with God. And it was that message that exploded across that region of the world. It jumped into Europe. In the book of Acts, we see it moved over and ultimately would make its way to our country and many others as well. Because it's the message that was fulfilled ultimately in the person of Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. There was Jesus one day with his disciples. The city was Caesarea Philippi. 
It seems as though it's an intimate moment with his disciples. Matthew chapter 16 captures the conversation. You're wondering if I was ever going to get there, right? Had you opened your Bibles to Matthew 16? It's one of those benchmark conversations. Two questions that Jesus asked. You ever had somebody ask you a question that was so penetrating, that was so personal, that just cleared the clutter so effectively that it's a question that you'll never forget? Jesus was about to ask two of them. He asked them in the context of a conversation 2,000 years ago. I completely believe he asks these same two questions still today. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 is where we start says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man was an Old Testament prophetical reference to the Messiah. He's asking his disciples this day, who do people say that I am? I mean, what's the word on the street? I think Jesus already knew, obviously. He's God. I think he knew what the word on the street was about him. He could see through the intents and the purposes of a person's heart. And he's asking his disciples here, maybe for their own sake, who do, the, who do people say that I am? When you're out and around and you go to fill water or you go to buy something in the marketplace, I mean, what's, what's the word on the street? Who are people saying that I am? Verse 14, this was their response. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's like they come up with all these answers. Well, this, this can't, can't be who he says he is. This must be John the Baptist coming back to us, right? I know he was beheaded. He was an amazing you know, right, lover of God. This must be John the Baptist. Others say, no, no, this is going back way even further to the Old Testament. This has got to be Elijah. This is Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then Jesus looks at them, and I think in penetrating fashion, he asks them this next question, this most important question that, listen, every single one of us have to answer, verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because the world can't define me, who do you say that I am? And he knew. Sitting in that circle of 12, there'd be one that would get it wrong. There'd be one that would miss it. Judas. He knew when he looked the disciples in the eye and he asked this question, there would be one who would look at him as the golden ticket as the lotto ball, as the arm on the slot machine. And he'd miss him. And looking at them one by one, I believe, who do you say that I am? It's a question that every one of us have to answer. It's a question that we can't afford to come to our deathbed on our dying day and wish we had given it more thought. I'll tell you who he is. He's the answer to every problem, every question that plagues your soul. I'll tell you who he is. He's the hope to every ounce of hopelessness that you've got. He is the peace to every ounce of chaos that you face in your life, and he is your help, your greatest help, and your only reliable help when you come to that place of utter helplessness in life. I came across a writing this week as I was prepping this message, and I won't, I had originally not planned to read the whole entire thing, but I I have highlighted parts. I'm just going to read the whole thing this morning. 
And uh, it's anonymous. I don't know who wrote it, but uh, it captures just a little bit of who he is. To the artist, he is the one who's altogether lovely. Every single one of these has a passage reference. I won't read those. To the architect, he's the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he's the son of righteousness. To the baker, he's the bread of life. To the banker, he's the hidden treasure. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the carpenter, he is the door. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the blind, he's the light of the world. To the engineer, he's the new and living way. To the farmer, he's the sower and the Lord of the harvest. To the florist, he's the rose of Sharon. To the geologist, he's the rock of ages. To the gardener, he's the true vine. To the judge, he's the only righteous judge of man. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is counselor, lawgiver, and true advocate. To the newspaper man, he is the good news of great joy. To the philanthropist, he is the unspeakable gift. And to the philosopher, he's the wisdom of God. To the preacher, he's the word of God. To the priest, he's foreshadowed in the tabernacle. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the servant, he is the good master. To the statesman, he is the desire of all nations. To the student, he is the incarnate truth. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith. To the toiler, he is the giver of rest. To the sinner, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And to the Christian, he is the Son of the living God, the Savior, the Redeemer, and the loving Lord. And man, when he left heaven, he not only made you the day that you were created, but when he came to heaven, came from heaven 2,000 years ago, he came because he loved you. And he didn't just make you, but he came for you, and he died for you, and he rose for, rose for you. He went back to heaven to prepare a place for you, and one day he's going to come back for you. But the only way we're going to get there, and the only way you're going to know that you're going to be a part of that beautiful scene, is when you come to him on his terms, and it's not based on your goodness, and it's not checking the boxes. It's when you lay down your ugly sin in the sight of a God who says, man, I will forgive it if you just trust me. And it's only him. You won't walk out of these doors and say, wow, that sounded decent, but I want to find a better answer. It does not exist. And he didn't come to be a toy to be played with. And he didn't come ultimately for us to play games at the foot of the cross. And he didn't come for us just to dabble around with him. He's not into dabbling. He came to be fell down in front of and worshipped and lived for. And his message spread through our lives as far as he'll let us. That's why he's here. That's why you're here. And if you don't know him, man, he stands ready and willing and able to take that ugly slate of sin and just wipe it clean in an instant. To give you a brand new heart and a brand new life. And to say, I'll leave you or lead you from here. And I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And if you do know him, he's the only one worth knowing. He's the only one who would go that far to save you. And when he did, he gave it all. How close are you today to that Jesus Christian? Is he just an idea? Is he just a box to check? Oh, I'm going to go to church and sing about Jesus. Or do you know him? And are you content with how well you know him? Or do you constantly want to press in closer and closer and know him better and better and more and more? Hey, if you're dry today, 
It's that Jesus who calls you back into the light to give you life. If you've wandered today, it's that Jesus who says, hey, I will forgive you and cleanse you if you just come to me and confess my sins. And if you don't know him, it's that Jesus who, de- who today says, just lay down that sin and trust me and invite me in and I'll forgive you and keep you forever. And I don't know what decision you need to make, but I tell you, we have to decide who do you say that he is. And the way you answer that question will impact everything from that point forward. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Adam comes to play. Before we sing our song of invitation, I want to I give you the opportunity. It would be the most unfair thing I could do to talk this much about who Jesus is and not give you an opportunity to respond And this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, you have the opportunity right where you sit today to begin the most beautiful relationship that you'll ever have with the God who made you. If you're ready and willing to lay down your sin, to confess it to Jesus and invite him to forgive you and to come take residence in your life and to save you. He's not concerned with getting the words exactly right. He's concerned with the attitude of your heart. This morning, right where you sit, if you're ready to begin a relationship with Christ and you've never done it, You can just pray a prayer similar to this. Lord Jesus, I know that I need you. And I know that my sin has broken my relationship with God. I believe that you are God, that you died for me, and that you rose again. And today, the best that I can, I lay down my sin. And I invite you to come and to forgive me, to save me, and to take over. Thank you for saving me. Help me to live for you. In your name I pray. Amen. God, I thank you this morning for those who may have prayed that prayer for the very first time, for those who have just stepped into a beautiful relationship with you, God. Lord, thank you that for them the name of Jesus means something different now than maybe what it did before. Oftentimes it's only used as blasphemous, almost a curse word and you found and you saved us. But God, sometimes our worship can get so dry and sometimes we can just wander one little step at a time away from you to a place where it seems like you're not even with us anymore. And God, if that's the case for any this morning, may that step be taken to come back home again, confessing where we've wandered, thanking you for your grace. And God, give us the Give us a love for you that will keep us in the very center of your will. God, whatever decisions we need to make today, Lord, help us to get them right and help us to demonstrate that as we live out your life every day from this day forward. And so thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.